So this morning, we want to talk about some, some ways in which God sanctifies us. Uh, we talked two weeks in a row on the Holy Spirit. He's huge. He's, he's critical. He's uh, the key element in our life. We get him at salvation. He's always there. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. Uh, but we can stifle him. We can quench him. We can uh, kind of take that power and not take part in it. We cannot uh, avail ourselves of it. But there's other ways in which God has chosen to sanctify you and I, and that's what I want to look at this morning. But first, I want to run a, a few quotes by you. These are in your notes, but R.C. Sproul says this about sanctification. He says, the Christian life requires hard work. Our sanctification is a process wherein we are co-workers with God. We have the promise of God's assistance in our labor, but his divine help does not annul our responsibility to work. So if you've gone through these last, what, 10 weeks, and you've decided, well, it sounds like God does it all, and I don't have to do anything, well, you're mistaken. That's not what this, this doctrine is about. And this is clearly what R.C. Sproul is saying here, is that we have our part to play. Yes, it is the work of God, and we have the Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the family of God. But I still have to put effort into it. John Bunyan, who wrote back in the 1700s, a whole lot later, uh, earlier than uh, R.C. Sproul, he says, if you do not put a difference between justification wrought by the man Christ without... Now, this, this guy's writing in basically old English, so it's a little hard for us to understand, but he's talking about your justification. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you were justified, made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's an, it, an external action. It's his blood, his death, his righteousness that is imputed to you. So it's external, but that's how you are made right with God. He says, if you don't differentiate between that act and sanctification, which is wrought by the Spirit of Christ within, so Jesus Christ's death without, Spirit within, you're not able to divide the word aright, but contrarywise, you corrupt the word of God. What's he mean? Well, if, if as a Christian, and what's been interesting in teaching this, this doctrine over the, the last 10 weeks is how many guys have never heard anything about the, gospel, the doctrine of sanctification? Or at least they've maybe heard about it, but they haven't fully understood it. If you live your life as a Christian only understanding that I'm saved, Jesus Christ died, his blood cleansed me, I am now justified, made right with God, and someday I'm going to heaven, but you don't understand sanctification, which is the process that's taking place in your life right now, you'll never fully understand the Word of God. As a matter of fact, you'll be frustrated by the Word of God. Because you'll read things like, I came that you might have life and life more abundantly, and you're going to go, well, where is it? I don't have it. I came that, you, that your joy may be full. Well, where's my joy? I don't have any joy. Where's my contentment? Where, what's, go, what's going on here? And then you'll begin to twist the scriptures. You'll begin to make it mean what you want it to mean. And that's why he puts so much emphasis, and you've got to understand both your salvation, your sanctification, and ultimately, your glorification. Charles Spurgeon said this, some Christians overlook the blessing of sanctification, and yet to a thoroughly renewed heart, this is one of the sweetest gifts of the covenant. If we could be saved from wrath, now think about what he's saying. He's saying the same thing John Bunyan said. If we could be saved from wrath, and how does that happen? Through faith in Christ, his death, he died so that I don't have to. He was condemned so I don't have to be. So if I understand that, if I understand that I was saved from wrath and yet remain unregenerate, in other words, unchanged, impenitent sinners, we should not be really saved as we desire. 
In other words, all of it I understand is that Jesus Christ died for my sin, and then I spend the rest of my life living in sin. What's changed? What's different? Well, I'm going to heaven. Well, that's great, but you're still here. Did, did Jesus Christ die so that you might sin? You know, Paul would say, may it never be. Forbid it. That's crazy. He came that we might live righteous lives right here, right now. And so he goes on and says, we should not be saved as we desire, for we mainly and chiefly pant to be saved from sin and led in the way of holiness. I don't think there's a guy in this room who does not long to be more holy. Or you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't read your Bible. You wouldn't go to church. You, you long to be holy. You want to be different. You want to change. You pant after the things of God. The key is, how, does it, how do you get there? How do you, how do you see it happen in your life? Well, Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is a verse you're very familiar with, and this is in the New Living Translation. It says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. The ESV and other translations say something to the effect of work out your salvation. There, there is no doubt about it. I have work to do in this thing called sanctification, my, my Christ life here in this earth. And I'm to do it, I'm to do it through obedience to God, and I'm to do it with reverence and fear. But then he goes on and says, for God is working in you. Well, which is it? It's both. I'm to work hard, and he's at work within me. It's, it's a work of God. It's a spiritual work. It's a supernatural work. But guess what? I have to participate in the process. And he gives me that desire, and then he gives me the power. See, desire without power is nothing. You know, somebody who is paralyzed may have the desire to walk, but they can't. They don't have the power to walk. God gives me the desire, but he's also giving me the power to do what pleases him because he's working in me. Henry Drummond, I know I'm jumping a lot of um, quotes on you this morning, but I think they say it better than I could re-say it. A religion of effortless adoration may be a religion for an angel, but never for a man. Again, what's he saying? Angels are up in heaven right now adoring God 24-7, 365, if there is days and hours in heaven. They're adoring God. That's what they do. But he says, that's for an angel, not for a man. Not in the contemplative, but in the active lies true hope. In other words, we don't sit around and just contemplate spiritual things. I don't just stay in my home and I just read my Bible and think holy thoughts all day. Ultimately, I got to get out and live my life. I got to apply it. I've got to be active. He says, not in rapture, but in reality lies true life. Not in the realm of ideals, but among tangible things is man's sanctification wrought. So at the end of the day, guys, what's got to happen is this stuff we've been studying for 10 weeks has to apply in the here and now, in the everyday areas of life, your work, your home life, your thought life, the words that come out of your mouth, the thoughts that you think, it's got to have tangible action in your life. It's got to be active, real, and tangible. But again, how? How do we do this? Well, it's supernatural. No doubt about it. God's involved. Holy Spirit helps. It's not ethereal. It's not mystical. It's not unapproachable, unattainable. It's the work of God, but it requires me to put in effort. The reason many of us 
if not most of us, are not where we would like to be in our spiritual walk has nothing to do with the power of God. It has nothing to do with the lack of the presence of the Spirit. It has everything to do with your lack of desire to do what God has called you to do. Let's be honest. There are days you wake up and I don't want to read the Bible. There are days you wake up and I don't want to go to church. There are mornings you wake up and I don't want to go to men's Bible study. I'd rather sleep in. I'd rather do X, Y, or Z. I don't want to do it. And you have a choice to do A, B, C, D. So it does require work. It does require effort. And it's ongoing. It's never ending. It never stops. You don't have one day of joyous expectation and exaltation. And man, this is a great day. What a holy day. What a great day. Mountaintop experience. And you live off that for the rest of your life. I've tried. It doesn't last. Because you got to do it again and again and again because it never stops. So how does God help us do this? And this is probably the most, the most practical lesson we're going to have to date. And you're going to say, well, I've heard all of this before. Probably so. But are you applying it, living it, and are you seeing change because of it? See, what Hebrews tells us is that may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. Now, this is an interesting prayer to me. It's a prayer. The author of Hebrews is writing to these believers and he's saying to them, I'm praying for you that the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. Now, what's interesting about that to me is that as far as I can tell, I already have it. I am equipped. I have the Holy Spirit. I have the word of God, the body of Christ. I have everything I need. So why is he praying this? To remind them, not so much is he asking God to do it, but that they would recognize they have it that God would equip you, that he may produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. So he's talking about doing God's will and pleasing God. Now, if you were here week one, we, we looked at a verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, that tells us this is God's will for you, your sanctification. You want to know God's will? It's you be holy, you be righteous, you live as he called you to live. And he's equipped you, according to the author of Hebrews, with everything you need. Peter tells us we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. We lack nothing. So what's the problem? Well, probably the problem is us. It lies with me. It lies with you. It does not lie with God. So we're going to look at four basic things. And these are all in your notes. Four basic things that God uses to sanctify you, to change you. And you'll notice, at least on this chart, I've put God at the top because God's the agent behind all of it. He's the key. You don't leave God out of the picture. There's also four things. You don't leave three out and keep one in. You don't keep two in and two out. All of these things are used by God to sanctify you and I. And my challenge to you this morning is to think about which one of these is lacking and maybe it's two or three. Which one is lacking in your life? Is not where it needs to be in your life. Because you will never be truly sanctified if some of these things are not evident in your life, if you've left them out of your life. So first of all, God is the agent, the key agent. He's the one who changes you. You don't change yourself. I think we've kind of gone down that path a number of times over the weeks. How does he do it? How does God change you? Again, Philippians 2.13, God is working in you. You may not feel it, you may not believe it, you may not think it's true, but he is. If you're in Christ, God is working in you. And he's giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. 
Are you accepting it and utilizing it? That's the key. He's giving it to you. He's working in you, but are you cooperating with that action? So what has God done for you and I? Well, first of all, he chose you. Now, before you freak out and before you go, oh, he's, he's teaching election. He's, he's going down election path. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you what the scriptures say. You deal with it however you want to deal with it. We're not going to talk about election this morning. If you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. Um, if you want to talk about it, I'd be happy to. But look, look at what it says. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Now, don't worry about, okay, what does that mean? You know, am I elected? Did I choose God or did God choose me? What you should camp on is that God loved you and chose you. That means you're pretty special. Now, does that mean you're pretty special because you're pretty special? Like you, you were pretty top-of-the-notch guy, you were the sinless guy, you were the righteous guy, and God looked down and goes, man, Ken Miller, that, i got to have that guy on my team. No, I was the guy I always was in grade school who was the last one picked on any team for any event. You know, I was always the last. There's two of us always there at the end when they were picking teams, you know, choose captains and pick teams. And I'm one of the last guys standing there, you know, like, I'll take him, I'll take him, I'll take him, and then it's down to two guys. And we were always the smallest, you know, and you're just like, oh, gosh, it's going to be me again. And you're just hoping you get chosen. That, that's kind of what's the picture here is that God chose me in spite of me, not because of me, but he chose me. And he, he loved me enough to, cho to choose me. Then he put life into me. See, this is what's amazing to me is that I was dead and he gave me life. I was totally hopeless and helpless and he chose me and he revived me. Look at what it says in Ephesians. God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. He brought us back to life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You had no way of doing anything worthy of God, righteous. All your righteous deeds were filthy, filthy rags, and yet he chose you, and then he gave you life. Then he adopted you. That's amazing to me that God would take me, give me life, and then he would put me in his family. See, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And look at this, and it gave him great pleasure. He, he brought me into his family. He chose me, he revived me, he gave me life, he took me from death to life, and then he adopted me. And then he gave me a new nature. You see how this, this just grows? And it should amaze us that any of this has happened, that he chose me is amazing, that he gave me life is amazing, that he adopted me is amazing, but then he gave me a brand new nature. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. I'm made new. I'm not the old man I used to be. And look at this. Put on your new nature, Paul says. Wear it proudly. He's not saying go out and get what you don't have. He's saying wear what you are, be who you are, put away what you used to be and live in who you are, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. See, what's amazing is 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, God's will for me is my holiness, and he tells me I am holy and I am righteous. Live like it. Live like who you are. That's what sanctification is all about. So I just, I just did a before and after, what I used to be and what I am now. And sometimes we don't think about this. Paul, Paul's amazing. In every one of his letters, he's always telling the people, don't forget what you used to be. 
not wallow in your sinfulness, not wallow in your old identity, but if you don't remember how you used to be, you'll never fully appreciate who you are now. Look at what it, 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 these verses tell us. I used to be alienated from God, now I'm reconciled. I'm made right with God. Because of me? No. Because of Christ. Because God chose me, God revived me, God adopted me, gave me a new nature. I am now reconciled. I used to be an enemy and now I'm a friend of God. I used to be dead, now I'm alive. I used to be without hope in the world, but now I have, I'm full of hope. Hope in what? Hope that I, I can live out this life. Hope that I have eternal life coming. Hope that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I, I have all kinds of hope. I used to be far off from God, distant from God, but now I'm near. And you may say, well, not, I don't feel near. Who moved? Did God move? No, you probably moved. It, the problem is always with me. But I want to blame God most of the time. God, why did you? God, where are you? But the problem is usually mine. I used to be a stranger, now I'm a family member. I used to be unrighteous, now I'm totally justified, made right with God. I used to be guilty, now I'm totally forgiven. See, look at this. This is an amazing list. And yet God's not done. See, these are all things God has done for you and I. We're on the right side of the equation, and yet he's not done. Because look at what Philippians 1.6 says. The God who began this good work in you will bring it to completion. See, what's cool about this process is that God has already done so many things for me, choosing me, loving me, adopting me, giving me a new nature, and he's still at work in me, and he's not yet done, and he will never be done until his son returns or I go to be with him. See, he's going to bring it to completion. He's going to bring it to fulfillment. So God's at work, but how does he work in you and me? And the first one we're going to look at is the word of God. The word of truth changes you. If I could sit down and have coffee with every one of you, every one of you, I believe, would tell me at some point in your life, God changed me through the power of the word of God. Of word of God. He used his word to change me. He convicted me. He motivated me. He encouraged me. But ultimately, he changed me because of time spent in the word of God. See, Psalm 19.7 says, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. When I wake up in the morning, I need my soul revived because I know I'm going into a world that is against me. I'm going into a world that is totally screwed up. I'm going into a world where people don't believe what I believe and hate what I believe. And I need reviving. And I don't get reviving from CNN, Fox News, or any other you know, channel. I don't get reviving from the newspaper. I get reviving from the Word of God. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. I am a simple-minded man apart from the Word of God. And we're going to see in just a minute, if you are not wise in the Word of God, you give out simplistic, foolish advice to people. And worst of all, you give simplistic, foolish advice to yourself because you're not in the Word. See, all Scripture is inspired by God, Paul tells Timothy, and it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what's right. You know, the part I hate about this passage is the part about it corrects me. I, I don't want to be corrected. I don't want to be shown I'm wrong. But you know what? When I get into the Word, it always shows me something that I could either be doing differently, better, or not at all. Stop doing that. You're, you're harming your walk. You're harming your life. You're stifling the spirit. Stop doing that. Do this instead. 
That's what it does. It teaches us what's true. How do you know what's true? The Word of God. Otherwise, you're listening to anybody and everybody else. And this world is full of lies and half-truths and total truths or untruths. So I got to go to the Word. For whatever is written, Paul told the Romans in former days, the Old Testament was written for my instruction. That's why we study books like Judges. You may be going, I'm not going to that. That's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. I don't want to study that. It's written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. There's not a book in the Bible that I've studied and read about that I have not been blessed by. Not a one. And that's why we do it. That's why we spend time in the Word. Because look at this. this. These are just some of the things I know that the, the Word of God does because it's done it in me. It shows me God. It reveals life, the meaning of life. What's the purpose in life? If you don't have this, you're going to seek for purpose anywhere and everywhere. It explains the presence of sin. How did it get here? It shows me the lies of the enemy. It reveals the holiness of God. Don't read this book to get just help for you. How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better husband? How can I do X, Y, or Z? Don't go to the concordance and go, I'm struggling with sin. Let me find some verses on sin. I'm struggling with faith. Let me find some verses on faith. Just read the Bible and look for God. See what it teaches you about God, the holiness of God. It's, it's how we know about the plan of salvation. We wouldn't know it any other way. We have the gospels. We have the New Testament. And through these books, we're convicted, we're encouraged, we're guided, we're reproved, we, we're challenged, and we're changed. That's what the Word does. It changes, me, changes you. Because at the end of the day, what it is, is the revelation of God. Here's what it's not. And these are, these are kind of my pet peeves. It is not a blueprint for living. I hate that definition. It's not a blueprint for living. In other words, I don't go to this book and use it as a self-help guide. It's also not a roadmap for life. I particularly hate this one. There are, there are maps in my Bible. They're all of the Middle East. They won't even help me in the Middle East today because they don't have map, they don't have road signs, they don't have anything. And most of the names are even different today. This is not a roadmap for life, and it's most certainly not the secret to your best life now. And yet, that's what we go. We go, okay, I want to be a good dad. How do I get, go to be a good dad? I want to be a good husband. How, what, what, what verses do I need? Read the scriptures. And here's what I will guarantee you. You will become a good dad. You will become a better husband. You will be a better leader. You will be all kinds of things because of how this book will change you as you seek to know God better. But don't turn it into a self-help guide. That's not what it's meant to be. That's not the intent. And it's most certainly not just another book. You know, if, you're, if you say, well, I don't read the Bible, but I read, a ro- I read a lot of books by John Piper or John MacArthur, or you pick the author of your choice. Hey, that's great. They're not God. Read the Bible. Read the Word of God. Reading their books to help you understand the Word of God is fine, but if you leave out the Word of God, you're making a huge mistake. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes your innermost thoughts and desires. Why? Because it's alive, because the God who wrote it is alive. He's living, he's active, and it's powerful. This book is powerful, but many of us don't believe it. 
We just think it's a book. And we don't spend enough time in it. And we wonder why we don't change. I love that you're here. I love that you come and you listen to me. But guys, I would rather you spend time in the Word than come here. If you're not doing both. I want you to spend time in the Word. I want you to grow in love with the Word. Because it alone, according to this verse, differentiates, separates between the natural and the spiritual. Otherwise, you're living in a natural world. You're, a, you're really a spiritual being living on natural truths in a supernatural setting. See, this is a supernatural setting because God is here and God is in you and God is wanting to work. But you need the word of God to help you, to guide you. Well, secondly, you need others. Now, this one particularly doesn't gel well with me because I don't need anybody. I'm a loner. I love to be by myself. I, you know, I love to just do things by myself. And it's easy to live the Christian life as a man by yourself. And it's a recipe for disaster and futility. Because God has put others in our lives. Our spiritual walk is influenced by others, positively and negatively. And this one's really important, guys. Proverbs tells me that whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. Now, that sounds pretty logical, right? If you hang around with wise people, you get wise. If you hang around with idiots, you become an idiot. You become like those you hang around with. It's been true in my life. You know, my, my first roommate when I went to Baylor was an alcoholic, and I became very quickly an alcoholic. I mean, just basically drank all the time, skipped classes, flunked out of college. He also had a drug problem. I became somebody with a heavy drug problem, and I was selling drugs at school. Because I hung out with idiots, and I joined a fraternity full of guys just like him. It was called a social service fraternity. We did nothing of service to anyone. We served our desires. Who I hung out with changed me, and it changed me in a very negative way. See Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance from who? Who do you get guidance from? Who do you go to when you need wisdom? Hear instruction. Be wise. Don't neglect it. Who do you listen to for instruction? And you say, well, I'm here. I'm listening to you. I'm not sure why I got up, but I'm here. Great. But in the heat of the day, when things are going south and your marriage isn't going well, or you've got questions about the Bible, who do you turn to? See, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The, the greatest sign of a fool is somebody who never seeks counsel from anybody. A fool, according to the scriptures, is wiser than all his teachers. I don't need any help. I don't need any wisdom. Everything I'm doing is right. But no, I need input in my life, wise input, godly counsel. Where do I go to get, and how do I know it's godly counsel? You have friends who speak into your life who you deem godly, and they claim to be godly, and they're not. Now, I'm not saying they're not saved. I can be saved and ungodly at the same time. I can live ungodly and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not living sanctified. I'm living in the flesh. I'm living according to the deeds of the flesh. So how do you know it's wise and godly influence? You got to be in the word. So you can say, well, I got a lot of wise Christian friends, so I don't need the Bible. Oh, yes, you do. Because the only way you know if their wisdom is true is if you compare it to scripture. And here's some advice. If anybody tells you something and you find that it's not true in scripture, reject their advice. 
Now, one of my pet peeves as a, as a minister of God, as somebody who counsels a lot of people, I have people come into my office and typically has something to do with usually divorce. And it's either a woman or a man. Typically, it's a woman. She'll come into my office and she'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my husband. I don't, I don't know what. I give up. I just, he's an idiot. I don't love him anymore. I don't know what to do about it. And so I'm divorcing him. I'm like, okay, so why are you divorcing him? I don't love him anymore. Okay, that's not grounds for divorce according to the Bible. And him being an idiot is not grounds for divorce. So why are you divorcing him? Because, well, my friend Marcy told me that I need to be happy. God wants me to be happy. And every time I want to say, call Marcy, have her come here so I can punch her in the throat. Because <laughs> Marcy just gave you unbiblical, ungodly, unwise advice. Because nowhere in the Bible that I know of does it ever say God wants you to be happy. It does tell me God wants me to be holy. So that's bad advice. Do not listen to Marcy. Marcy is well-meaning. Marcy loves you. And Marcy wants you happy. But guess what? Your happiness is not God's greatest concern. Your holiness is. And yet, so many people listen to who they deem to be godly people because they go to church with them. And they listen to their advice, and they never check it against Scripture, and they go down wrong paths. And it's a dangerous thing to do. Good advice is not necessarily godly advice. And so here's a warning to you. When people come to you for advice, do you base it on Scripture or what you think is Scripture? In other words, if I sat down and said, why did you just tell that guy that? Well, because somebody told me that. Where did they get that from? I don't know. Somebody must have told them. Well, where is it in Scripture? I don't know. It sounds godly. Well, is it? I don't know. Be careful what comes out of your mouth. Because somebody's turning to you. This is a scary thought. Somebody's turning to you for godly wisdom. It could be your kids. It could be your wife. Do you know it's godly wisdom? Have you spent time in his word? See, wise counsel is there to rebuke. Tell, sometimes tell us you're going down the wrong path. You're doing the wrong thing. Stop doing what you're doing. Paul rebuked Peter, one of the apostles, but it's also there to encourage us and push us towards further godliness. And here's what I know about me. I need that in my life. I need others in my life who are willing to rebuke me at times, sometimes to encourage me, push me, challenge me, question me. I need that. And you need that. You need others. You need the word, you need others. And then you need suffering. Oh, no, I don't. I don't need this one. Well, sorry. Your sanctification is going to, has, and will continue to involve suffering and circumstances. And I hate to say this, but in my life, this is the greatest way God has changed me. Now, maybe it's because I'm stupid. Maybe it's because I'm stubborn. But this is how God works in our lives. Look at this. Paul told the Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings, and I want to go, stop. I don't. You may, I don't. And then I have to think about it. But do I? Do I really rejoice in my suffering? Probably not in the heat of the moment. But when I have time to look back in retrospect, I can rejoice and go, man, I am so glad that happened. I didn't like it for the moment. I didn't enjoy it at the moment. But I know that it did these things, that it produced endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. I have grown more in adversity than any other way. Now, I'm not telling you to go seek adversity. 
I'm not telling you to pray for adversity. You don't need to. It's going to come. It's part of living in a fallen world. But guess what? God will change you in adversity. God will mature you in adversity. Why? Because it gets your attention. See, if you're floating along doing really well, and this guy who said he doesn't read his Bible basically said, I don't read my Bible because I don't need to read my Bible because my life is going great. But here's what I know. The minute his life goes south, he will become a prayer warrior and a student of the scriptures. Well, I gotta, what does the Bible say? You know, I need help. God, what do I need to do? It gets our attention. And yet we give it no value or merit. I don't need this. I don't want this. I don't want to go through this. We, pray, we try to pray it away. God, take this away from me. Paul did that. He tried to pray away that thorn in his flesh. And God said, you know what? My grace is sufficient. I'm not going to take it away. Because it exposes your weakness, Paul. I don't want my weaknesses exposed, but I need them exposed because if I get cocky and I think I don't need God, I'm in a really dangerous place as a believer. So it exposes his weaknesses, my weaknesses, and it makes me more dependent. See, Paul says, I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Everything about that statement is wrong to me. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. No, no, no. When I'm weak, I'm weak. When I'm strong, I'm strong. But see, in God's economy, when I'm weak, I'm really strong because in my weakness, I realize I need God. And you know that's true. When you're at your weakest moment, that's when you have a tendency to turn to God more than ever. Or you go seek counsel or you go to get somebody to help you. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my marriage. I don't know what to do with my rebellious son. I don't know what to do about my porn addiction. I don't know what to do. I need help. Weakness causes us to call out, and when we are weak and recognize it, we become strong in the Lord. Remember, you have everything you need. You're fully equipped. And Paul reminds us our present troubles are small and won't last very long, but they produce in us a glory, a greatness, something we can't produce any other way that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. See, this is not the end. This is not, God's not done. He's at work. He's going to complete it. The completion comes with our glorification. We got to keep our eye on the goal. We got to remember what he's doing. I love this from John Newton. He says, faith upholds a Christian under all trials by assuring him that every painful dispensation is under the direction of his Lord, that chastisements are a token of his love, that the season, measure, and continuance of his sufferings are appointed by infinite wisdom and designed to work for his everlasting good, and that grace and strength shall be afforded him according to his need. Do you believe that? When you're in the midst of a trial, do you really believe God loves you and he's infinitely wise and he knows what he's doing and I can trust him? I don't particularly like it, but you know what? I'm going to rejoice in it because my God chose me, adopted me, gave me a new nature, and he's not done with me. And he's got a purpose in this. I don't understand it yet, but the time will come when I do. I love this story about Paul. Paul's an amazing character. Paul's one of my heroes of the faith. Can't wait to meet the guy. And yet, this story about him in Acts 14 is pretty interesting. It tells us that Jews came from Antioch, Jews who didn't like Paul. They were always following him everywhere. They were always trying to get rid of him. They came from Antioch and Iconium, and they persuaded the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. Now, get the picture here. Paul has been stoned with rocks and stones and left for dead. Everybody thinks he's dead. That's a bad stoning. They didn't just like throw one rock and hit him in the head and he passed out. No, they stoned him and left him as dead. And then what does it say? But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. Are you kidding me? 
He gets up after being stoned, covered in blood, gashes in his head, all over his body, and he goes into the city. And on the next day, he went out on with Barnabas to Derby. He took a road trip. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He took a long road trip, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And listen to this. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, do you think he had their attention? He's got scabs all over his head and his body. He's probably got pieces of scalp gone. He's covered in blood and bruises. And he's saying, hey, guys, I want to strengthen you. I want to encourage you. Continue in the faith through many tribulations. Here you go. Take a look at it. You're going to enter the kingdom of God. It is not an easy road, but guess what? I'm still walking. I'm not done yet. I'm bruised. I'm battered but I'm still going. See, suffering gives you credibility. Have you ever had somebody come into your life when you're going through a difficulty and they want to speak truth into you and the only truth they can think of is all things work together for good. And you're like, have you ever been through a divorce, you idiot? Well, no, no, I'm not even married. Then shut up. Shut up. Until you know what I'm going through, shut up. If you have cancer and somebody comes to you as fully whole and never had a disease in their life and they go, all things work together for good, you want to reach up and grab them and choke them. Why? Because they have no credibility. They're quoting scripture they don't even yet understand themselves. See, Paul had credibility because he had the bruises, the stripes, the pain, the experience, and it gave him authority. See, one of the, if I'm affected at all in this thing called the ministry, it's because I spent 29 years in your realm, in advertising, in work, in doing what you do every day, and I've been there. I've been on the verge of bankruptcy. I've had to fire people. I know what it's like, and that gives me credibility because I've been there. I'm not a pastor who went from high school to Bible college to seminary and then went right into the pastorate, and I've never been out in your world. See, it gives you credibility. It allows you to speak into other people's lives. Peter tells us, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. See, when I tell someone that and I've been there, it has far more power than I just quote a, a scripture. Peter had suffered. Peter had denied the Lord. Peter had done things that he regretted. See, our trials and suffering are temporary. They're not eternal. But here's what's really important. They don't define you. When you're in a trial, it's not God's hand of judgment on you. It's not because you're a lousy Christian. It's not because God has fallen out of love. Or it's, it doesn't define you, but it does identify you, right? It shows the status and the strength of your nature. Are you living in your new nature or your old nature? It reveals if you truly have faith or not. Well, finally and quickly, this one's really obvious, guys. You are a key element in your own sanctification. That's why it says work hard, do your part, play your role, do what God has called you to do. See, here's what you've already done. If you're in Christ this morning, you turn to God at some point. You believe the gospel message. You heard it, you believed it, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've already played a major role in your own sanctification. You repented you turn from your former way of life into a new way of life, but you're not done yet. And this is the key point this morning about your role in your own sanctification. Look at this. Every day, 
including today, you must submit, pray, confess, love, obey, give thanks, trust, seek refuge, fear God, delight in God, walk with God, rejoice in God, follow his leading, serve him, and hope in him. Every day. And if you don't want to do any of these things, here's what I guarantee you. You will not grow in your sanctification. You have a role to play. It's not, your sanctification is not based on these, but these things are critical in the process. I'll end with this. C.S. Lewis. We may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but he, God, has a different plan. He's determined to carry out a quite different plan. To shrink back from that plan is not humility. In other words, God didn't save you for you to be ordinary. And he says, to shrink back from God's plan, which is for you to be extraordinary, supernaturally powerful in the spirit, to shrink back for that and go, "Eh, I don't want to be super spiritual guy. I just want to be normal average, average Christian guy. That's not humility. It's laziness and cowardice. When I read this, it was like a brick to the forehead. Well, I don't want to be the most spiritual guy on the block. I just want to be a good dad and a good husband. See, C.S. Lewis would say, that's not humility, that's laziness. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania. So in other words, for you to want to be a godly man, a holy man, a righteous man, is not your ego, it's obedience. Because what does God want for you? What's his will for you? Your holiness. And that should be the same thing that I desire. So here's your three questions for this morning. In what ways have you found yourself content to be an ordinary person instead of a set-apart, sanctified saint? What does that look like in your life? And guys, I beg you to be honest because it's true in all of us. We, we get up and we just decide, I'm just going to be ordinary. And God wants you to be extraordinary. Secondly, of these three things, others, God's word, and suffering, which has God used the most to bring about your sanctification? Which one has been more prevalent in your life? God's word, the input of others, or suffering? And then would you say that your life is surrounded by godly people? If so, what difference have they made in your life? If not, how have they impacted your sanctification negatively? Who, who's your circle of friends right now? Three questions, all applying to four things that God chooses to use in your life. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this morning. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for wise counsel that you surround us with. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Father, for the trials of life. I don't particularly like them, but I know I've been changed by them and will continue to be. And then thank you, Lord, for the role you allow me to play in my own sanctification as I walk along in obedience to your spirit and according to your word. Bless the time around the tables, Father, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.